My name is Dominic Moyo. I'm joined here today with Bernie Mathis and Dave Fletcher. They have an immense amount of experience in field trial reporting for American Field, and we're gonna sit down and talk with them a little bit about that today. You're listening to the UKC Hunting Ops Podcast, celebrating hunting dog heritage, competition, and community. United Kennel Club has been the hunting dog sports home for coonhounds, beagles, retrievers, pointers, cur feist, and more for over 125 years. This podcast is fueled by Yukonuba, the official performance dog nutrition partner of UKC. So I'm joined here with Bernie Mathis and uh, Dave Fletcher, and these two individuals are prominent and well-known in the American field uh, history and the inside workings of it for quite some time. Um, I'd like to give them an opportunity to kind of introduce themselves just briefly. Bernie, can you kind of speak to us about uh, when you started with the American field and how long you were with them up until this point? Thank you, Dominic. Um, yes, I started the American Field in 1971 and um, wrapped everything up after about 50 years. Had a very wonderful tenure at the American Field. And, of course, the highlight was um, working with the editor, William F. Brown. And Dave can speak to that as well because he was hired by Mr. Brown as a reporter for the American Field. So, um Yes, I started in the uh, field dog stud book in the registration department because that's where Mr. Brown thought you get the um, fundamentals of the, of the business and the sport in the registration department and then moved into the editorial department, uh, my office, <laughs> coincidentally, right next to his. So, no, it was a, a wonderful 50 years for me. And over that 50 years, what positions did you hold there? Um, not only in the registration department, but, but editorial and then managing editor and um, introducing, bringing in the what they called at the time uh, desktop publishing, which is just going from the um, typewriter to the computer to print. Okay. Uh, Dave, so... As Bernie mentioned, you also had some time over there in the American Field offices back when it's in Chicago. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, you know, when you started there and what positions you rolled through while you were uh, working for American Field. I started working for the American Field as a part-time uh, field trial reporter in 1964. And because I lived in Calgary, Alberta, on the Canadian prairies, I was sent over to Manitoba and Saskatchewan to report the biggest prairie trials held by the American field in that day. And after four years of doing that in 1968, Bill Brown said to me, get a flight to Chicago and come and stay at the house. He says, I want to hire you to do field trial reporting. So that's where I met Bernie. And um, then I started full time. That meant uh, Canadian prairies in August and down through the Midwest and down into the piney woods of the South all winter, back up into the Midwest in, in, in April and May. And then in the summer, I worked in the office. I lived out in Des Plaines and um, with some field trial people. And um, 
Then July, it was in August, I was back on the Canadian prairies to do it all over again. <laughs> so you got to see quite a bit of the country, huh? Well, I, I looked this morning and uh, I've been field trialing for 63 years. Mm. The first part of that was uh, bird hunting and loving dogs. Well, I loved dogs as a toddler. Uh, my dad had spaniels, uh, springers and Irish water spaniels, and I tagged along with him hunting, saw birds being pointed, flushed, shot, retrieved. And then when it was time for my own dog, I decided pointing dogs were a little superior to flushing dogs. And then field trials came along, and the rest is kind of history, 63 years of it. Wow. Quite prolific. Um, so one of the topics that I wanted to talk to you guys about, because you both have experience in it, uh, especially Dave, is about field trial reporting. You know, that's that's kind of documenting the history of all these individual events as they're happening. And, you know, we still have records of those and can look back at, at you know, 60 years worth of history and beyond and see what some of these events look like through the eyes of these reporters. Um, so, you know, it kind of goes without saying that it's kind of important, but I kind of want to hear y'all's take on the historical and um, uh, significant presence of field trial reporting and reporters in the sport. Um, we can start with Bernie. What are you, what are your thoughts on how it impacts the history of the sport and its significance? Well, field trial reporting, the, the, the individuals who chronicle the, the major events and even the local events do a, uh, a remarkable service for the sport. And the the dean, so to speak, of the field trial reporters traces back to the 1920s with uh, Mr. Al Hockwalt from Dayton, Ohio, and Dr. Bruett. They covered the sport, and, and they're very prolific individuals in terms of their repertorial schedules. Um, as Dave mentioned, you know, he would start in the fall and um, – in the prairies and then go deep south in the Midwest, similar to what Mr. Hockwalt and a number of other leading um, writers did. And of course, um, Mr. Brown, uh, the longtime editor of the American Field, he came to the American Field in 1926, and it wasn't long before he was on the circuit, and it was not impossible for him to report up to 50 to 60 trials in a given year. Uh, he, he was on the train, you know, to Canada, on the train to the Midwest, on the train to the grouse trials, on the train down south to the plantations to report all the major stakes. And uh, he followed and set, he and Mr. Hockwell set the, the tradition and the standards for field trial reporting, which Dave carried on for 60 years. Yeah. Uh, Dave, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. You know, the if you feel there's any other uh, uh, additional pieces of field trial reporting and how it affects the sport. <laughs> I'm going to be pretty basic here. The, the big things that you have to have starting into a field trial reporter's career, you have to know how to ride a horse, how long to wear the stirrups, so you don't wear out something else. You have to be able to type quite well, and you have to be truthful. 
Bill Brown said to me when he first sent me to the prayers, Dave, he said, there's only going to be six to 15 people riding horses and looking at those dogs. He said, all the rest of them want to hear about them, how good they are, what they did, what they were capable of. So that's, that's the basic typing, being able to ride a horse and stay with it. Bird hunting as a kid, I had a shotgun in my hands at 12. I was killing ducks, pheasants. I had a few Hungarian partridge. And if you don't know what it takes for a bird dog to hunt for, find, and get pointed without flushing his quarry, you, you aren't really ready to report or judge a field trial. You have to have that experience. Today there are a few that don't have, but the superior judges have that experience, mostly from the childhood on up, as I did. I'd like to add something too. What day was that? The the work of a reporter at a field trial of major stakes is probably the hardest job. I shouldn't say the hardest. the The most demanding job because you're you're riding or you're following the dogs for eight hours, and then you are chronicling what the dogs did. And it depends. I mean, you're talking 12 dogs in an hour heat, uh, what they did over their performance. So you're out there working eight hours, and then you have your, your dinner that evening, and you might be working another two or three hours uh, conveying this, to the, you know, putting it down, in, to use an expression, on paper, but it isn't anymore, but uh, writing up what the dogs did, so... It's it's very um, it's a very demanding uh, exercise. You know, it's kind of funny you mentioned the the extra hours as soon as you get back to uh, to the hotel room or wherever you're staying after dinner. Uh, I heard stories and rumors about Bill Brown as a reporter. Is it true that he would carry a typewriter everywhere he went and sit down that night and type up his yeah. uh, handwritten notes? Yes. His advice to me was. When you get off that horse, get to your motel room as fast as you can. Get your fingers typing while you can still remember. You've got good notes now. You've got a judge's book and you've got good notes in it, but you have to remember some of the parts of it. and Get it over with because those club officials are going to come and get you for a steak dinner and a couple of cocktails. And he says, you don't want to be back writing after you've done that. <laughs> No, Mr. Brown, it's interesting how different, Mr. Hockwald, who was the dean of the field trial reporter, started back in the 1920s, every, after every day, his, his report for the day's activities, the day's performance was finished. The same with Mr. Brown as well. Never went to bed that, that evening without having finished and, and I'm sure Dave can concur, he followed the he same. He instilled that in my head, let me tell you. you, you you don't put your head on the pillow till your field trial report of that day is finished. And uh, so um, other reporters have found it a little different. Uh, Bill Allen, for example, a uh, longtime wonderful writer, um, he was able, he had a very retentive memory. And, but his philosophy was when the field trial's over, I'll write it up. So. Uh, he wasn't doing it every day, but hmm. you know, he always filed, and his reports were filed 
in a timely fashion. So even though he might have waited till the end of the trial to prepare it and to type it up and send it in, it came in very promptly. Mm -hmm. Another thing that Bill Brown taught me, people don't want to hear bad things about a dog. You got some dogs out there that stink. They don't hunt the right places. They're slow. Their tails hanging between their legs. They've got no style. They've got a lousy gait. Don't write that up. If the dog does something good, let's say he uh, he had beautiful range and he came around beautifully and never got lost, say that. Don't mention things like, "Boy, this was a terrible dog." I don't know why they even entered him. You just can't say that. Oh man. Well, I mean, that makes sense, right? You're you're documenting the the highlights of oh. that field trial. Is that fair to say? Another thing, this sport relies upon the reporter for breeding information. You want to, you've got a good female. She's got all the qualities you want. You want to raise some puppies out of her. You're going to pick a stud dog. If you can't go to all those trials and see these dogs with your eyes, you have to see those dogs through the eyes of the reporter. So the reporter is very um, important in the breeding of animals. If, if he reads about this dog in this trial and the next trial and the next trial, and he's just an outstanding dog, that may make his decision on what stud to use on his good female. Hmm. The breeding program is very important. You know, something I've kind of noticed because I've gone through and I've read reports as they're coming in here and there. And, um, you know, I, I noticed there's some events that, you know, they go into a whole lot of detail about the event. And then there's others that, um, you know, whether or not they had a dedicated reporter there that day or if it's just someone who volunteered after the fact to make sure that something got submitted to American Field, now UKC. Um, you know, what what advice would you have to maybe individuals who are members of their own club or, you know, just their writing in the gallery if they, you know, to urge them to kind of take the leap and say, hey, be a reporter for this day. At least document this for the, the club and these dogs' sake. What would your advice be to somebody who really doesn't have a whole lot of experience behind them but want to do a service to the sport? I think part of it was that you would – encourage them to read some of the premier reporters, how they reported and how they chronicled the uh, report. It gives them a little bit of a um, primer on how a report could be crafted. And many of them may be not comfortable um, with writing. But in some respects, um, I think experience has shown that in many cases, it's easier to get two judges for the field trial than to get a reporter because it is demanding and it is, you've got to be there watching all the dogs and, and trying to evaluate. And so a club official trying to uh, get judges and a reporter and setting up motel rooms and making sure the judges are, are taken care of and they're, uh, it, that it's very demanding. So I think if someone says, yeah, I'll, I'll write a report, and you're happy to have them do it, but it may not be the best. Okay. Um, Let me chip in here. Please do. The judges are a great resource to the reporter. And 
their quality varies and some are brief. They don't want to talk about it. Some are, they explain things very well. Your source is the judges. If you have anything that you didn't see, you didn't analyze properly, get some help from the judges. Go to them and say, hey, you know, the club appointed me as reporter. I don't have much experience. Can you help me with what to say about these dogs? That works if you've got the right judge. If you don't, you're just going to have to find somebody that does give a good report to you if you missed it. Okay. Now, you kind of mentioned the the structure of a report, like in, in speaking. What is the best structure for a field trial report in your opinion? Is it going strictly chronologically? Are you putting a little bit more emphasis on the winners? Are you putting a little more emphasis on on bird contact or overall style? What? How would you lay out a, a report? You have a formula. I've always had a formula. The opening paragraph tells what happened and in brief fashion. Then you go down through the club and the dates and the weather. Then you get to a, a, a bracket called the winners and others, where you explain which dog won, why they won, who was close to winning a championship or being a runner-up. And then you go to the brace-by-brace, brace, which I believe is necessary, not in every trial, but in classics or championships, what actually happened on the field. He made some good casts. He finished well. He was never lost. He came around to the front on his own. He didn't have to be scouted. He didn't have to be hauled from way back behind. And so that's been my format over the years. Okay. Uh, John Criswell, who is a very um, good writer, um, he crafted one report where he has the field trial has now concluded, and the judges have named their winners, but they go back, uh, they go to the restaurant, back to, to, to the motel, and it's lunchtime, so they're sitting at the luncheon table with their sandwich and their um, lemonade or, or iced tea, and they have a conversation about what happened over the last three or four days and why they like, and it was... The field trial report was crafted as a conversation between the two judges, what they saw and what they liked about the winners. It was very, and then he incorporates about, uh, it was nice to see so-and-so uh, who was judging because I hadn't seen him in quite a while and we had a nice conversation. So he introduced the judges that way. And then how he maneuvered to give accolades to the uh, club officials for hosting a very enjoyable and successful trial. It was a very interesting uh, field trial report. Okay. I have something else also. You want your report to be as full as it can be with details. You've got to be quick. When they turn the dog loose, just before they turn him loose, ask the handler, is your owner present? If he is, you want to mention his name. And any other information, you have to be quick. You have to get it before they, the judges leave for home if you want to talk to them. Get all the, the information you can when it happens or anticipate when things are going to break loose and get it done before things fall apart and everybody goes their separate ways. Hmm. So uh, 
kind of circling back with something that Bernie mentioned, um, you know, the report was kind of intended to be a conversation between the, the reporter and the judges. So I guess the overall intention for a field trial report is to kind of help the outsider digest what the judges saw, not necessarily what the gallery saw out of a dog. Is that fair to say? I think what you're trying to do is convey to the reader what this dog did as um, honestly and as accurately as you can. And um, like Dave mentioned too, if, if perchance the reporter misses something, he may have to consult with the judge. You know, what, what happened here exactly? What happened here? And, uh, um, no, you don't want to get gallery gossip, so to speak. <laughs> you can use that. You want to give an objective appraisal of what this dog is. Gotcha. So the reporter is essentially just a third judge who doesn't get a say in who wins the field trial. He, he, well, he's not a judge. Yeah, he's he's a he's there he's an official be, observer. Yep. Okay. I thought, with my experience, that I knew if a dog was winning the stake or very high in the echelon of the winners, the close dogs in that stake, and I wanted to tell the fourteen, fifteen, twenty thousand readers of the American Field actually what I saw happen. Okay. That's a good way of putting it. That was my job. Alan, we both had Daltra Pathfinder 2s now for a little while. What do you think about yours? I'm liking mine. One of the things I had the opportunity to now download a map of an area where I did not have service, and I've used it there, and it has worked flawlessly. I love it. Yeah, I love the crystal clear maps. I love that I never lose reception on my dog's collars anymore. Highly recommended by me as well. Dogtra Pathfinder 2, the official GPS collar partner of UKC. So we've talked a little bit about the specifics of what a report is, what it should be, what it should look like, and what it should include. But, you know, one of the things we're missing is this wealth of experience of being a field trial, field trial reporter that we have in having both of you here to talk about it. So you reported on field trials, you said for 63 years, 62. Yes. And Bernie, how long did you report on field trialing? I would say probably 40. Okay. So we have well over a hundred years of experience in field trialing and reporting field trials here with us. So it would be, um, you know, kind of be a little disappointing if I didn't talk to you guys about some of your most memorable uh, experiences over those decades reporting these field trials. So, uh, you know, Dave, let's start with you. What was the first field trial you remember going to as a reporter? Well, it was, uh, I grew up in Oshawa, Ontario, which is the General Motors big town in Canada for producing automobiles. And at Toronto, they had the Toronto Club, which was a member of the Ontario Bird Dog Association. And what is now the runways where the Toronto International Airport is was our field trial grounds. It wasn't developed in those years. And I had a German short hair derby who ran about from here to the end of the building. And I was competing with pointers and setters who were tremendously better gated and more active than my dog was. And I very quickly learned 
They're not looking for my kind of dog. They're looking for something that runs a whole lot more. It's a lot classier in motion. I better look at buying a pointer. And so that was my next dog was an English pointer. One of the... <laughs> I got to tell you an incident that happened in Ardmore, Oklahoma. It was the U.S. Open Brittany Championship. And Rick Smith was running a dog, and I've forgotten the dog's name. And he had some fines, and he shot over the dog. The dog was broke. Everything was fine. And we came to the end of the day in which the, this dog had run. I went in, get, getting off my horse in the barn, and I said to my judge, I said, how about this dog of Rick Smith's? I think we ought to move him into championship position. He says, we can't. I said, what do you mean? He says he shot over him with a twenty-two. It's supposed to shoot over him with 32. I said, okay, well, we'll just put that on hold for a minute then. And that day, I don't know if it was that day or the next day at noon, I called Bill Brown the field, and I said, Bill, what on earth am I going to do about this? I said, I don't think the U.S. Brittany Championship has any bylaws. I said, I don't know what to do about it. I said, I'm happy with the dog. I'm happy with the, with the noise that the 22 made. He says, that's all you have to be happy with. Was it a proper, fine shot, steady to wing and shot? I said, everything was perfect except it was a 22. I said, I'm going to name him champion. So I talked my other judge into that situation. That could have been nasty. Fortunately, it didn't happen that way, and it was resolved. But it was a tight little spot I was in. Mm -hmm. And Bill Brown had the answer. He always had the answer. <laughs> Well, so, um, you know, talking about one of the events you judged, what, what's one of the most memorable events you remember reporting at? The first trial I reported for the American field, other than on the Ontario Championship, was in 64 when I went to Frobisher, Saskatchewan for the Border International Chicken Championship. There was 90 in the championship, one-hour heats. There was 110 in the all-age, half-hour heats. There was 37 derbies and 27 junior all-age. The trial lasted 14 days. Now, let me tell you, that's when I told you earlier in this little podcast that you should be able to ride a horse fairly well and last. I lasted for that trial, but that horse put me on the ground seven times, and I was lucky enough <laughs> not to get hurt. And Fred A. Rant won the championship with Rambling Rebel Dan. The all age with Ramming Rebel Dan, and the Derby with Mingo. I don't know who won the junior all age because I stayed in and wrote. I had plenty of typing to do. <laughs> 14 days, a total entry over 200 in total, and that may be still a record or it may have been surpassed by now. I don't know. Oh, wow. <laughs> what, one quick other thing. One time in Henry Barrels in Georgia, we had the National Lambert or something or other. There was 110 in it. It was a shooting dog state, not an all age. 110 to look at and tight. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Just hearing about that, I'm not sure what the years were or if you mentioned them, but thinking about the, the wealth of, of knowledge and participation and, and dog work that existed to have an event of that size just to kind of 
it makes me wish I could just be there and walk around and talk to people and watch these dogs. And uh, you know, I don't want to say it was sounds like the heyday of uh, American Field because you know, with all hopes, the best is yet to come. But that's just it, it definitely was among the highlights. Mm-hmm. And Dave can concur with if he can verify this. But how many trainers were competing in that trial? I wrote an article for the American Field not too many years ago about the prairie trials and about what's going on today. And let's say that the 2020 prairie trials, which ones that survived and were still being run, I believe there were either 12 or 14 trainers present. The survey that I did of the 1964, there were 42 trainers involved. Professional trainers, numbers have declined. I don't know whether it's grounds, opportunity, uh, people coming to the trainers with dogs to train. I don't know what the exact problem is, but there's a lot less trainers today than there were. Do you think it might be shifting a little bit towards the amateur looking to work with their own dog and get their own dog up to that level? Do you think that might play into it a little bit? I think I've always contended that the, the amateur portion of the sport is really the lifeblood of the sport because it, it is the amateur that generally is the club are the club officials. It is the amateur competitor and participant who is judging in many cases the open stakes. And it is the amateur in many cases in this day and age they are breeding some of the better bird dogs in some you know, it, it, in the old days, or the olden days, so to speak, a lot of the trainers had brood bitches, and, and they had good stud dogs, good performance, and they would, they would breed anywhere from them, and Dave could concur with They this. did. They, the trainers bred a lot of very good dogs. 10, 12 litters a year, and, and developed a lot of those puppies into good, good field trial performers. Today, it, it seems to be that we're, uh, the amateur uh, competitor is, is becoming the... Uh, the breeder of, of note in many respects. They are. Do you um try and think of how I want to ask this? When you look at the sport as a whole, do you think that um, the amateur involvement, or you know, you mentioned amateur being the lifeblood of it? Do you think um, along with them increasing the the caliber of the breedings that they might be doing that the pros used to be doing do you think there's also something to be said that they might be pushing the caliber of dog in the field and progressing that a little bit more or do you think what how do you think the uh the dog work now compares to how it was back when you saw over 200 dogs at a at a field trial personally i haven't attended open all age with professional handlers for several years. I've been concentrating on walking dogs, NBHA, U.S. Complete. <clears throat> They're different dogs. They're fine dogs. But where do you have all-age grounds anymore? You have them in the Canadian prairies. You have them in Texas and Oklahoma. But I think the walking trials have far surpassed all the other trials in quantity. There's a lot of them. Well, that also kind of makes sense as to why there might be fewer pro trainers attending some events because, you know, isn't the walking trial also kind of the 
the pipeline as well for people to get more involved with the sport, a little bit lower um, uh, cost of entry. They don't need a horse. They don't need a horse trailer. Consider what you have to have to compete in an all-age trial. Good gated horses, more than one. A trailer to haul them around the country. A big truck to haul that trailer. You probably want living quarters in that trailer. And you've got to have at home barns, pastures. You have to buy hay or grow it yourself. It's a lot more expensive today to do that than the walking person. He goes over there in his Volkswagen, the dog hops out of the back seat <laughs> and jumps on the field and goes to point some birds. I think in terms of the, I, I'm only speaking from my personal uh, opinion, but I think the dogs probably today are much better. I would say much healthier because of the feed that they're getting. I mean, the professional, I mean, the, the manufacturing feed, the veterinary care that's available nowadays is much i shouldn't say much better but it's they have access to a veterinary care and feed which is producing and keeping dogs healthier com competitive dogs because it is a very very demanding sport um, for these canine athletes and i, but I think they're, they're a better specimen of bird dog than they were one thing that I'm, <clears throat> I'm sorry about that's happened is the decline in three-hour trials. I wrote an article that you published not too long ago, a few months back. The three-hour dog shows you more about his genes, what he might be able to pass on to his progeny, than you'll ever be able to, to see and discern from a one-hour dog or even a two-hour dog. That third hour really shows you what that dog has to pass on to his progeny. And I don't know whether it's lack of grounds or whether the people are saying, oh, we, what do we need a three-hour dog for? I don't know that, but I, I reported a lot of them. They're free for all for 13 years and the one in Oklahoma for eight or nine years. And I absolutely love three-hour trials. They're almost gone. The national championship is the only one left. Yeah, like you said, there could be a lot of factors playing into that. You mentioned grounds. That's one of those things that they're not making any more of, are they? <laughs> You're stuck with what you've got. But, you know, I've kind of had the privilege to see a couple of different field trial grounds since uh, coming on board here with the United Kennel Club. And you guys have seen a lot more than me. Tell me about some of your favorite field trial grounds as far as the, the views or just that you enjoyed riding. Well, I mean, there's several. I mean, the Oklahoma grounds at the McFarland Ranch were, were superior. Um, at one point, they had six one-hour courses uh, with the adjoining ranches. Um, Jimmy Hinton's three hours, I mean, his at Sedgefields Plantation in Alabama had a, a number of different um, aspects to those grounds. Some were tight, some were big open vistas. And, of course, Ames Plantation now is much different than it was 50, 60 years ago in terms of no tenant farmers on the plantation anymore. And there are big expanses where dogs can really show their, their stuff you know, for the three hours there. Um, and even the Continental at uh, Dixie Plantation, now the Livingston Place, uh, wonderful venue. 
a, a beautiful venue, a striking venue. And of course, the prairies that you talked about. My favorite grounds, and I'm talking about one set of grounds out of all of them, were my favorite. It was partly the time of year. It was at Gainesville, Saskatchewan. It was the Dominion Chicken Championship. Jimmy Shaw ran it. And it was just the right time of the year that most of the grounds were prairie grass or the other 50% was harvested stubble fields with um, maybe 18-inch wheat stubble. Beautiful cover. You, the dogs could find a bird out in the, birds out in the open and get them pointed because the cover was there. And it was a fantastic set of grounds. It was the last one on the prairie. You saw the very best dogs of that year. And about half the ground was stubble fields with little bluff edges around the edges and on in the, in the front, of course. And it was just, just an absolute perfect place to look at a pointing bird dog. That sounds like it. Um, you know, you guys have also seen probably what thousands, if not tens of thousands of dogs over your careers. Um, is there something that sticks out? If I were to say, tell me the craziest thing you ever saw at a field trial. <laughs> I see Bernie laughing over there. You got something in mind? <laughs> well, not the craziest thing, but I was at the present, I mean, the quail future in Oklahoma and this old time trainer from Texas was going to run a dog, a young dog, a derby. And most of the trainers to keep their dogs, where you know, here I am, the handler, you know, he sort of sings to them. He took out a duck call. <laughs> so we're going around the course and he's blowing on the duck call. <laughs> so everybody in the gallery is sort of looking at each other. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of memorable things that go on in field trials. <laughs> a lot of memorable personalities, let me put it that way. Oh, it sounds like it. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> Depends on what time of the year. You might have had some birds dropping out of the sky on them, right? Yeah. What about you, Dave? What's one of the craziest things you can recall from, from your years? I'm having a problem getting something you, you might call zany. Um, <laughs> there were incidents here and there, but I, I can't at the moment recall anything that was, you know, of that category. Well, what's something that stands out maybe even a, in a positive uh light it doesn't have to be you know off the wall well i guess i could tell you about a guy by the name of henry barrel you talk about somebody that gave to field trials he was a springer spaniel man and i have to tell you a little bit here right now there are three people that i know of four people that i know of that are in more than one hall of fame one is henry barrel one is myself and one is delmar smith and the other the fourth character is Buddy Smith, but I've lost my train of thought, gentlemen. I had a nice little thing tucked away there, and I tucked it away a little too far. <laughs> well, Henry Barrel, you know, he, he, actually his, he, Barrelsheimer was his name, and they, his family was involved in a pencil business. I mean, the, the Eagle Pencil Company. Eagle Pencil Company. Hmm. And they were also involved in, um, remember Jean-Claude Keeley, the skier, and the, the ballpoint pen or something was part of this. But Henry Barrow and his wife had Dial Lane Plantation in Waynesboro, Georgia, which now Dial Lane is now, I think, 
under the car, uh, Corps of Army Engineers where they do still run field trials. On a small portion of what they had. Yes. And now Mobley and uh, her family have shepherded that trial for years. She's just a, a wonderful patron of the sport. Just let me continue with what I almost forgot. <laughs> Henry Barrel had a clubhouse built, furnished, staffed, horse barns, little cabins for the judges to stay into. He had, I think, a, at least 10,000 acres of land that he devoted to these field trials. And he would ride every brace, but they said he couldn't see over about 50 yards. But that gentleman gave of his property, his time, his money to, to, to provide a wonderful field trial grounds. And I think he was one of the, the best benefactors of field trials that I've ever known. Mm -hmm. Well, that would certainly explain why, why he's in the Hall of Fame, not just for one breed, but... Exactly. Yeah. So going through some of these uh, questions, I know we've touched on, you know, the the art of reporting in general, some of y'all's experiences as reporters. Um, you know, let's get into a couple of the specifics for, you know, anyone who's submitting reports. How soon after a field trial should a, a report be submitted? Well, <clears throat> Bill Brown instilled this into me. I, when I was stayed in Waynesboro, Georgia, for the trials at Henry Barrels, I walked to the post office every night about 9, 10, 11 o'clock and deposited sheets of typed brace-by-brace brace or, or material for that report. And he would be very disappointed if the last day of the trial he didn't get a postmark of my completed story. So the sooner the better. When when Bill Brown reported the national championship, Ames Henry Reynolds was the um, outdoor writer for the Memphis Commercial Appeal, and Henry would come out of a given day, and Bill Brown would have his report for say the morning, maybe that day, maybe that other evening, and he would give Henry Reynolds his write up and say, Henry, when you go back into Memphis, go past the airport, <laughs> no. But he thought maybe if he mailed it at the airport, it would get to Chicago faster, and maybe it did. But that's how prompt he got his reports in. And I, I would get them in a day and a half the next day in Chicago because I was there in the editorial department. Um, nowadays, with electronic conveyance and emails, um, it's very easy to get reports in virtually as soon as that the judges name the winners. You know, they can be you know, electronically filed in reports. And you don't want to, you don't want to publish, so you don't want to have old news. In this day and age, folks want to hear what happened, not yesterday or tomorrow. They want to hear it today. One thing that I took advantage of at Sedgefield's, Jimmy Hinton's place near Selma, Alabama, they had a two-hour lunch hour between the morning braces and the afternoon braces. And I would dash into that Fred Shepard clubhouse, grab a burger or whatever they had, and drive over to where I stayed in the butler's quarters near the big house. And I was on that, it was a typewriter in those days, I was on that typewriter and got all the morning running done. And that really helped. So promptness is pretty important. 
So yep. the short answer, as soon as you can possibly get them to the, to the office. Yeah. Not only that, before you forget some of the details that you didn't write down. Mm. Well, you know, we started this episode kind of talking about how rooted in the history uh, reporting is and how reporting helps continue that history and document that history and provide uh, something of a resource to people, you know, decades later. And, uh, you know, I think really covered that, that essence in this episode. Uh, I want to thank you guys for coming and dedicating your time to, to speak about it and share this with some of our, um, our listeners, whether they're in the pointing dog world or not, you know, sharing this, this rich history that is American field and something that makes up a big, uh, big portion of it. One last comment. What would our field trial game be like without a written report in a magazine-type publication? Can you imagine how terrible it would be? Well, you would lose invaluable history. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it does keep a little bit more honesty going as well. You know, it's easy when you're out in the middle of a prairie in the middle of nowhere and you might just have your buddies around you to embellish a little bit, but... You know, having that reporter riding right behind the judges keeps them honest, I'm sure. Well, thank you again, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting uh, us. It, it was my pleasure to have you guys. Thanks for listening to the UKC Hunting Ops podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and to like and follow UKC Hunting Ops on Facebook and Instagram.